Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to our Light Bears podcast on Bible Survey. We're continuing the New Testament series, and we have a staple, a Light Bears podcast staple. Yes, that's right. If you've guessed, those of you who are guessing, it's Andrew Brill. Because I'm sure there's lots of people out there, there guessing. Yes, there, there's <laughs> going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's Brill. Anticipated aside, it's Andrew Brill, and Glad he's going to shed some wisdom along with myself. This will be conversational on James and First Second Thess. Andrew Brill, how are you? I love that you said I'm well. I also like that you said First and Second Thess as opposed to Thessalonians. Yes, yes. that's you're, what uh, you're a nicknamer by I, nature. Yeah, and so even books of the Bible have nicknames yes. for you. Speaking of nicknames, as we get into James and First Second Thess, do you know the nickname of James? Uh, little little bro. Oh, it's yes, yeah, as Jesus called him, <laughs> little half bro. <laughs> no, it's a uh, fun fact. This is a a, a fun fact. James was was called Camel Knees, uh, old Camel Knees, not because he had scaly psoriasis knees, uh, but but uh, but really because he he was a man of prayer. So his camels are bowing and on their knees. Yeah. James was a man of prayer, and it's, it's kind of a cool legacy. So it's a, it's wow, a we're fact. just jumping right in, we, aren't we? We are. Wow, James. Uh, James also happens to be my middle name, so it's a, it's a great book. But we'll we'll, we'll start with uh, we will start with James. Andrew, why why does Lightbearers couple James and First and Second Thessalonians? Why are they grouped this way? Yeah, great question. The way we've structured our institutes is to go chronologically, and so you know we cover Acts and say, here's kind of the the context that the rest of the New Testament will take place in. So we did that podcast already, and then. Uh, from the best historical research that we can find, James and Thessalonians were basically the earliest written of the books. And so uh, James was almost certainly written before 48, 49 AD. Uh, the reason for that is um, James was such a major figure and the Council of Jerusalem in, in Acts 15 was such a major event that in all cert, in all probability, James would have mentioned that council. Right? Was he? Was he when he was writing James? Um, and he didn't. So we think, well, that was almost certainly in forty eight, forty nine, or before forty eight or forty nine A.D. Uh, and then Thessalonians was probably Paul's first written letter, and yep. we can date that pretty pretty closely to about fifty one, fifty two. And so, um, whereas a lot of other books are happening later in the fifties, in the sixties, um, these two happen so early, and so we, we we pair them together. So it's two different writers. And they come at two different points in the New Testament, but because they were written about the same time, it's interesting to kind of say, what were the concerns of the early church? Yeah. And so that's really what we're getting into. And so, you know, if you think of the story of Acts, now we're kind of diving in and saying, okay, let's get into these churches. What were, what was important to these churches? What yeah. were they thinking about? What were their conversations yeah. like? Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, we, we kind of joked about James a little bit, but as we, we look at the book of James, who is he? And, and so we, we the, the, if reading the Gospels, we see a couple Jameses. Uh, which James is this? Who is this James that, that, that wrote this letter? Yeah, there were, there were two James who were disciples among the 12 of Jesus, uh, James, the brother of John, and James, the, the son of Alphaeus. And so, but this is neither one of those. Uh, this is James who was a, a brother of Jesus. And so... Um, He's mentioned in the Gospels a little bit. Uh, 
but you remember in the Gospels, the brothers of Jesus don't come out real right. positively. You know, Matthew 13, Mark 6, they're, they're there at a couple spots, but they, I mean, they come up to Jesus at some point and basically say, you're out of your mind. What are you doing? <laughs> and, 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 and just think about this. I mean, this is, these are people who grew up with Jesus. Yeah. And so they've known him for 30 years, and then they're watching him do this stuff, these miracles and this teaching, and they come to him and they say, you're out of your mind. You need to come home. Yeah. Um, now, and and just for clarity, I say brother, technically and accurately, he's called the half-brother of Jesus. Right. So um, it appears that he was uh, the son of Mary and Joseph uh, and was probably the firstborn. He's, he's listed first among the brothers. Um, but that's who he was in the Gospels. He was yeah. a brother of Jesus who, on some level, thought Jesus was out of his mind. Then there's this phenomenal moment in 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about uh, Jesus's post-resurrection appearances, and it says he appeared to the 12, he appeared to uh, more than 500, and then there's this little side comment where it says, and he appeared to James. And, I, I, you know, obviously I wasn't there, we don't have record of that appearance, but it's just this really cool moment to me of Jesus appearing to his brother, the one he grew up with, the one he presumably played with, the one yeah. he ate with time and time again. I mean, this is a culture where people, kids are growing up together, outdoors, playing. James spent more time with Jesus than likely anyone yeah. Yeah. on earth. Uh, and Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, and this was presumably a James who did not believe in him. Yeah. Um, and so the, the graciousness there of Jesus to appear to his brother, and I think for a lot of us, I mean, a lot of you podcast listeners may have somebody in your family who you have prayed for, known, loved, cared for, for years, decades. That was Jesus's story with James. I mean, he had, he had somebody that he was with for decades and it was only after his resurrection that James came to faith. And so just a really neat, I mean, that's just one of those relationships that I'd love to know more about. And from there, James becomes a a leader of the early, early church, probably, you know, Outside of maybe Peter and Paul, he's the the biggest figure in the early church. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and at Acts 15, when we have the council at Jerusalem, you know, there's these debating opinions. Should we circumcise? Should we not? And And there's all these different opinions. And then on some level, James gets up and says, this is what we should do. I mean, everybody looks to him. So it's him and Peter who kind of stand up as the kind of ruling voices, um, first among equals in a way. So he's clearly a major figure. He's also mentioned in Galatians 1 and in Jude. I mean, this is a guy who shows up all throughout the New Testament. Um, And so I think it's helpful with that in mind to look at how he identifies himself. So this is, if I read the first verse of James, so obviously James chapter 1, verse 1, here's how he opens this letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I, I think it's just significant to think about that because, I mean, this is how you introduce letters back then. You, you put the sender first and the recipient second. Uh, but he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about his brother. Right. He yeah. says, I'm a servant of God and I'm a servant of my brother, who is the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's how he identifies himself. Think how 
um, think how that has been brought about in yeah. his life. And oh, I just think that's pretty incredible. Yeah, you see, yeah, as you said, you see from the Gospels to you're crazy to not even saying, hey, I'm, even if he wanted to, to, to bring validity to his title of, hey, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus, he just says, no, James, a servant of God, a bondservant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. That, you're right. That's, that's profound. That's yeah. big. Um, so let's, let's stick in, I mean, that's chapter one. Let's stick in chapter one. One verse at a time. You want to just go uh, one, one verse, verse at a time? time. We'll, we'll take three hours. One verse yeah. at a time. <laughs> and it didn't cost um, me a dime. That's a Johnny Cash song, except. I didn't know you were Johnny it's Cash It's one fan. piece at a time about a guy who stole a, uh, uh, car one piece at a time. Cause he worked at the assembly line in Detroit. Wow. Yeah. History. This is why they listen. Tell your friends guys. This is, <laughs> um, that's good. Wow. Johnny Cash. You will hear it all, podcast land. Um, and it burns, burns, burns. <laughs> the ring of fire. All right, so the, those of you, so those of you listen, by the way, I know we'll, I'll a quick caveat, and then we'll get back. We may to delete James. all this. Yeah, that's, uh, Andrew Brill, I actually don't take you as a country fan, but you do. I'm, I've over the years, I've been impressed by your knowledge, at least of Johnny Cash. Uh, you know, Johnny you know Cash, Conway Twitty. Oh, classic Chris. Arkansas, Arkansas guys. Yeah, actually, that's who Conway's named after. Uh, that's not true. As far as you know. As far as <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, maybe we'll do another podcast on Conway Twitty and the town. But uh, James, so you, you mentioned the intro, James 1. Uh, go back to, I mean, this is a relatively, when we think of James, at least in the church, we, we think of uh, this passage in, in James 1 talking about suffering, consider it all joy. Um. How should that section in James one? How should that change or shape how we view trials? Yeah, I think the the entire book of James, on some level, could be seen as kind of answering the question: How do we live in light of the fact that there's a sovereign God? And so it looks at all of these different issues. And so you know, chapter one is going to talk about riches. Well, if you if you if there's a sovereign God, then you're not going to show favoritism to the rich because you know that we're all equal we're all equal under, I mean, the rich don't exert any extra power because there's a sovereign God. What about sickness? How do we deal with sickness if there's a sovereign God? Well, he says, you pray and you ask the elders to come anoint with oil. How do you deal with, um, you know, the unknown? Well, you ask for wisdom. How do you, um, how do you deal with the, how do you deal with being a teacher when there's a sovereign God? Well, it says those who teach should be wary to do so because they'll be judged more strictly that yeah. you teach with fear. And so across the board, it's how do we live in light of a sovereign God? And specifically one of the issues that James is going to talk about more than any other is this idea of trials. How do we look at trials at hard things in light of the fact that there is a sovereign God? Mm. I mean, this is, this is a question that every individual deals with on some level or another is if there is a God who is totally in control how do we deal with the, yeah. and, and we trust what the Bible says that he cares for us, that he loves us. How do we deal with hard things? And James nails it right out of the gate or he hits it right out of the gate. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So first response to trials is consider it joy. And, and the word various there, I think is particularly meaningful because it doesn't say consider big trials joy. Right. It doesn't say consider small trials joy. And I think we can fall into either ditch sometimes. Right. Some of us can say, well, okay, if, you know, if I have cancer, then I'll work to consider that joy. And that's kind of what gets taught sometimes is right. that's a big trial you're walking through. Consider that joy. So it's almost glorify the bigger trials. Yeah. Right? But 
when you when you throw in various trials, that includes annoyances. And I think for a lot of us, it's a little easier on some level to fight for joy in the huge trials, but in the petty annoyances, the way that my kids respond to me, the line at the Burger King, the that was a horrible example, but you know, the way <laughs> nobody you know, King. The, the line at, you know, you know, my cell phone doesn't work. My spouse and I are right. in an argument, uh, at work. My coworkers don't understand me or don't appreciate whatever the case may be. The petty annoyances actually rob our joy even more sometimes. And, but some people are the opposite. Some people are happy go lucky. Don't worry about the little stuff. And then the big stuff really challenges them. And we're all in one camp or the other or both. And James says, consider it all joy. And why? You know, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so it's this, you know, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so the idea is we are supposed to look at every single trial, little or big, with the mindset of this is this handled rightly can produce something in me. And if I believe that, then I can have joy. That doesn't mean I enjoy the trial, but it means that I can have joy trusting that there is a God. And this is a wonder that this is a God who doesn't let either various petty annoyances or massive tragedy go by the wayside. He works it to our good in that way. And I mean, that's, man, that's good. Uh, uh, Just a reminder, I mean, to, to me, to us, but, but the Lord's sovereignty in that, in the joy in our lives as a believer is one for, for God's glory, that God would be glorified, man, this hope that we will, I mean, to, to use Paul's language in, in Corinthians, bear the image of the man of heaven, that we will be sanctified, that we will be mature and complete as James said, not lacking mm-hmm. anything. And so, uh, I mean, even for, for, for me to think, is that, uh, is that where our hope lies? Is it in God's mm-hmm. goodness and his sovereignty, even take trials, whether big or small and shape us and mold us so that we are mature and complete, not lacking anything. And really what we need to do is to get our eyes off of those small annoyances and those big trials and look them, uh, put them up to Christ mm-hmm. and to say that, man, that yes, he's maturing me so that I may not like anything that he might be glorified and I mm-hmm. might look more like him. Yeah. Uh, and, and to be honest, man, of, of God, God help me, God help us often. Mm-hmm. We, we don't do that. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a great reminder. Yeah. And, and some versions will, will use the word perseverance that it's going to develop perseverance. Uh, other other versions will use the word steadfastness, mm-hmm. and I think that's a word that we don't use very often in this day and age. But the idea of being steadfast—that's uh, one I've been thinking about a little bit recently. That you know, I want to be identified as somebody who is steadfast. I want Christians to be identified as steadfast because that's not simply I can wait. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean I can simply hope. Um, it doesn't mean I just white knuckle it through that there is a steadfastness and that is rooted in God himself. You know, later on, it'll say, um, it'll say every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the father lights, from the father of lights with, with, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God has no variation. Mm, right. He has constant, obviously trust in who he is and what he's going to do. We're supposed to reflect that yeah. not ever never having struggles in it but we are supposed to be steadfast and to strive for that it's a cool to, to think of uh, as believers our our hope is our hope is that we will change and that hope is based on his unchangingness mm-hmm. of and praise god that that he's faithful that our hope isn't in um 
what we do, but our hope is that we will change and that he does not. Uh, and, and praise God, uh, James is good in that. Um, one of, and, and this is, uh, I mean, even in church history, uh, I know sometimes James is regarded maybe as, uh, but by some people, and uh, as maybe a lesser book, I, I think, is it Martin Luther, uh, who, who called it an epistle of straw, uh, who, who wanted James to, to be uh, uh, maybe toward the back of the Bible. Yeah. Um, but, but it is James preaching a workspace salvation. I, I mean, we get themes that faith without deeds is dead. So, so what, what's, what's going on there? Is it preaching that or, or, or is, is there something that yeah. maybe people were missing? A little? My assumption would be that Luther, who came out of such a works-based uh, upbringing and mentality and, and tasted the goodness of the gospel in Romans, yeah, as, as he looked at the books of the New Testament, he wanted Romans front and center because that was so significant that we have to get grace. We have to get um, the righteousness that comes from God and not from ourselves. Whereas James read on its own, you're, there, you can read it and say, okay, wait, where, where's, where's grace in this? Yeah. And so Martin Luther says, uh, I'm not... I'm not as comfortable with that, so I'm going to put it towards the back. Not that he, you know, I don't know exactly what he right. thought <laughs> right. per se, but yeah, he wanted Romans front and center, and James he put at at the back after all the stuff by Paul. But um, I think it's important to to look at this and say a couple things. One, a lot of commentaries have compared James to the Sermon on the Mount, mm. and so. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount by itself, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's one sermon, and there's a lot of command to action in that. And it's kind of a, here's a picture of how the followers of Jesus are going to live. It's it's not necessarily meant, it, it certainly gives hints towards the gospel and forgiveness, all of those things, but it's not meant as a full-scale theological treatise. Right. That's why we have the whole Bible. James, on some level, is the same. There are hints of grace and forgiveness and all of those things, obviously. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, with God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't favor the rich or the poor. I mean, these are messages from the gospel. Um, but there is also the sense of like, hey, this is how people are going to live when they believe there's a sovereign God. So it's kind of a picture of that. Right. Okay. So, um, so part of it is is, and, and you also got to remember, James has written. Um, to a Jewish audience, and so it's written to an audience who has a such a high view of one God. Yeah, that's yeah. and so they're living in light of that. And so James is saying, how do we live in light of that yeah. worldview? Okay. The other piece is you got to also recognize that James and Paul are not writing at each other right. in a sense. You know, it's not, it's not like duel. James is reading Romans and is like, oh, I got to correct that, or vice versa. Okay. That's not the case at all. Um, that they're they're dealing with issues that they care about in their own churches. They're not, in a sense, responding to each other. And both of them are very, very clear that true faith is never alone. Right. That there's no such thing as an intellectual assent to faith that has no tie whatsoever to action. Yeah. And so they're not saying that um they're not saying that anything we do saves us eternally. They so they're not saying that. They're also not saying that you can have some intellectual assent and then you get to go to heaven. Like, that true faith is going to produce fruit. Right. It's going to produce yeah. works. And so, for example, you know, Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. 
So the works don't matter. He says circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. It's faith working through love. He says what matters is your faith and what's going to happen. That's naturally going to work out towards love. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We all love this. The first by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, 2.10 says... We skipped the 10. Yeah, I mean, he's prepared good works for you to do in advance. So for Paul as well, it's all tied together. It is faith of necessity... The natural outworking of this is fruit. It yeah. is good works. They don't save. And so James is going to say the same thing. But then, you know, so I think that's that's some good kind of framework to put around it. If you look at how they talk about these things like works and justification, all those sorts of things, there are some distinctions about it. Okay. So, for example, Paul, when he talks about works, that word works, he's meaning things that people would do to gain salvation. Yeah. When James talks about works, he's talking about the fruit of faith. Same word, but they mean right. it in different and, that, and that's a great distinction. And, and to those who are listening, uh, this idea of a hermeneutic that, that hey, let, let's not, let's take all of scripture uh, and let scripture interpret scripture. And, and so mm-hmm. to, uh, if you're taking James's standalone uh, and not taking the whole counsel of the word of God and taking the whole counsel of scripture, it might be a little easier to, to, uh, to maybe, oh, well, maybe it, you know, is salvation based on works. But if we look at the whole council of scripture, as you pulled, I mean, you're, you're pulling from, I think it was Corinthians from Ephesians or, or from Galatians, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, that's just a great hermeneutic to let's let scripture speak into this. And scripture does all pointing to that. Yes. If you're truly saved by grace through faith, you will have works and deeds that follow. Yeah. And so that's just, just wanted to point out for, for those of you who are listening, uh, use scripture to interpret scripture. If there's questions in the Bible, New Testament, particularly the Old Testament's, let scripture interpret scripture in that. That's good. Speaking of other books of the Bible, let me turn the table on you and let's turn to Thessalonians. Great transition. First <laughs> okay. Thess. Yeah. So um, Thessalonians, we're going to talk about first and second Thessalonians. I'll just, I'll give a little context, which is uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on one of these missionary journeys and he goes to this place called Thessalonica and he he follows this pattern, which he does other places, which is, I'm going to go to the synagogue. I'm going to preach the gospel to the to the Jews. Uh, in most cases, a few will believe, yeah. and then basically the masses will reject and even persecute. And so he says, "Okay, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles." Yeah. So he does that in Thessal- Thessalonica, and he basically begins a church. Yeah. Um, he's there for just a little while. He leaves, and then when he's in. Um, Another city, which escapes me right now, which one he is. Uh, but again, probably about fifty-one A.D. He writes this letter. Was, was he? Was it Corinth? That's what I was gonna. Yeah. That sounds right. Let's let's go with that. <laughs> um, he he writes to the Thessalonians this letter, and so he's writing back to a church that he planted, and and just has all of this care that yeah. he lavishes on them. You know, he talks about. I cared for you like a nursing mother. I exhorted you like a father. I mean, so he's using parental language. Calls them, is it, is it Thessalonians that says, uh, you are my crown? I mean, an yeah, affectionate language. Yeah, and and I shared not only teaching, but my life mm. with you. I mean, there's clearly a a care there. Um, Brett, you, you shared about this at um, at the Institute. What what to you seem like, you know, a couple of key themes or, or something, you know, a key theme out of Thessalonians that 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 really jumps out. We can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I uh, I mean, given to that context of, and again, I mean, this idea of using scripture to interpret scripture, uh, 
man, a great to give you more insight. Andrew mentioned Acts 17. Acts 17 is great uh, when, when he's in uh, Thessalonica. So this is Paul's second missionary journey. And I think that's from Acts 15 to Acts 18 that he's going to be in Macedonia. And so uh, Paul, uh, uh, along with Silas, preaching the gospel. Some people were believing. And then we, I think we see this. I, think, I want to say it's Acts 17. Um, but, but Paul refers to them as, as uh, or I guess Luke, writing Acts, as bad characters. So these bad characters who accuse Paul and Silas of, uh, of uh, basically defying Caesar. And so, I mean, you have Jesus as king. And so they are claiming Christians and Paul and Silas saying, hey, they're saying that's Caesar's king. They're defying Caesar, but they're pledging allegiance not just but to Jesus. And this guy named Jason uh, is put on bond and, and, and he's kind of housing Paul and Silas. Uh, because, and then persecution kind of ramps up. And so that they have to flee, uh, I, think, I think it says, uh, at night. And, and so uh, kind, of, kind of with that backdrop of, I mean, one of the, the, the major themes is simply... Uh, and Paul hears, he's writing, and he says this in First Thessalonians, he's writing to, to hear, uh, he sent, actually, I think it was Timothy, to see, how are they doing? Persecution's really intense. How are they doing? Timothy comes back to say, they're not only doing great, but they're thriving. They're doing really good. And so Paul kind of writes them to, to, to one, really encourage them in the faith, uh, and to encourage them to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. Uh, he, he's going to talk really about that. And we're going to see this both in both, both in first and second Thessalonians. Uh, some people would call it these, the, uh, eschatological epistles. So the, uh, this idea of the return of the Lord or, or the coming of the Lord. And so that's going to be kind of a, a common theme. Uh, and, and also one of just faithfulness in life uh, of not being idle. And we'll see this more in second Thess, uh, but, but kind of this theme, but, but they're kind of in both. So it's, it's, persevere in the midst of persecution, it's kind of this idea of, hey, our hope is based on, on the Lord's coming of, yes, the cross is the deed, but Paul's saying, hey, the resurrection is the hope uh, of this is the hope. So in the midst of persecution, he's saying, look, look to Christ, hope in his resurrection, he's coming. And until that time, let's live according, let's live holy lives. And so he'll, he'll there's kind of this transitional prayer. I think it's in, in 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, to where he, he he's going to say this prayer, and then he's going to go from, hey, the Lord's coming, hope, endure, and then he's going to get into the practical of, hey, it's it's the Lord's will that you flee from sexual morality, that you be sanctified. And so in, in Thessalonica, it's this promiscuous culture, and he's saying, in hope of the Lord's coming, in light of the Lord's coming, live this way. And so that's kind of these the, these basic structures or themes mm-hmm. in 1st, 2nd Thess. That's great. There's You know, specifically, he, I, I know that it mentions, basically, that there are some people in in Thessalonica, who have passed away, who've Fallen died. Fallen asleep. Yeah, yes. at, which <laughs> it's great that he uses that language. Um, and, and, and there's a concern of the Thessalonians, kind of like, have they missed out because Jesus hasn't come back and they died? Yeah. What, what's kind of the, the answer that Paul gives to those people? Yeah, that's, uh, and, and that's a, I mean, we, we got to remember, this is a, a church that's planted, Paul and Silas, weren't there long, and yet, praise God, we, we see a, a strong, thriving church that Paul clearly has this relationship with, and, and we, we don't know how, per se, but apparently some, some of the, the members of the Thessalonican church have passed away. They, they've died. They've fallen asleep. And, and I, the, their concern, really, that Paul is kind of addressing is, when the Lord comes, what's going to happen to them? Uh, they're di- they died. What's going to happen? And 
mean, this is when we get... It's kind of an assurance of salvation. It, it, it really is. Uh, of that, that, I mean, he, he mentions that those who are dead in Christ will raise first, they will be with the Lord. And so their death does by no means separate them uh, from the Lord. But as a matter of fact, those who are dead will rise first. And, and so he, he's addressing uh, that, that, and again, was it persecution? Probably, but we can't say that for, for certain. But, but he's saying that, yeah, hey, there's assurance here. Uh, they're, they're not separated. Death did not separate them from the Lord. I mean, Paul writes this, obviously, in, in, in Romans 8, this not even death can separate you from the love of God. And, and Paul's saying that here in, in, to, to the Thessalonians, that, yeah, they've, they've passed, they're asleep, um, but uh, Christ will return. And when he does, they will raise, they will be with him. Mm-hmm. They are not separated. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost this, P- Peter talks about in, in 1 Peter, this, uh, we have a living hope. Uh, and, and praise God, our, our hope's living because Jesus is living. And because he's living, he's returning. Uh, because our king, our God, uh, the grave didn't overcome him. He's defeated the grave. That those who have fallen asleep, the grave didn't defeat either. That yes, they will be rise with Christ. They will meet him in the sky that those who are dead in Christ will raise mm-hmm. first. And he uses this language of grieve with hope. And that's a yeah. phrase that, mm-hmm. that ah, I just think it's it's really powerful because it it, it doesn't take away the grief, right? You know, and, and I think that that's really good and comforting that we can say it, you can grieve, be sad. I mean, these are hard things. I think as a culture, we have distance death from us. Um, and, and, and so I don't know that we're great at grieving as a culture. Um, I don't know that I'm good at grieving. Um, but, but this idea of grieve with hope. So, Grief is a natural thing. The this world is broken. Right. Death is not natural. It's not the way that God intended things. Yeah. Hey, and so we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Yeah. And so I think to do one without the other is is to fall short a yeah. little bit. And so um, anyway, so I think I really like that, that I, language. I, it, it makes me think of of this. I mean, to your point, that that verse of but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. I, I remember um, traveling to to a place in South Asia. And in seeing a son uh, bury his, his mother, uh, and kind of relatively public, and again, I mean, any believer or not, a, a wailing in in just a sadness and a mourning and a grief, uh, and yet uh, to to see just this wailing and to do these rituals in hopes that, and I hope she goes gonna be okay in the next life. What's gonna happen? I mean, the, the, really, no certainty. And so this morning in doing, as he's doing these things and drinking this really filthy water from this river and doing all of these things in hopes, and, and when we use the term, uh, don't want like those who have no hope, it's not like, I hope OU, as an OU fan, I hope OU wins the game. Uh, it, it's not this uncertain, this is a hope of certainty. Uh, if we don't mourn like those who have no hope, it's a certain hope, it's a guaranteed hope. So it's not this, uh, like this, this, this young man who is mourning the death of his mother of, uh, I, I don't know. It's this uncertain hope. I hope she's okay. And this, the, the mourning of that uncertainty, we, we don't mourn with an uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the difference. Praise God through the gospel of, we don't mourn like those who have no hope because we do, because our hope is living. Uh, and there's an assurance there. And so the, the, the hope of those who are in Christ is not a, Ugh, I hope the Razorbacks pull it off or I hope uh, whatever sports team, man, I, I hope they win. Yeah. Uh, but this is a, no, it's, it's a hope rooted in the character of God 
in his and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I mean, to, to, to use what, what James says in James one, that he doesn't change. It's, it's yeah. a hope and the character and faithfulness of God. And that's certain. Yeah. And so he, that, he that changes that. He didn't change. He didn't lose any of his people. Right. And so we're supposed to think on Christ's return. It's actually supposed to be a comfort to us. You know, Paul's saying all this, Jesus is coming back and it's supposed to be a comfort. Yeah. We, we, we as a culture, we don't grieve great. A lot of times we don't long for right. Christ's return. These are good things that God's told us. So, okay. One other, one other question on this last question. Um, you mentioned that there's some instruction on how to live specifically, uh, chapter four is going to first Thessalonians four is going to talk about the will of God. Um, what's it going to teach us about the will of God yeah. a, that, that could be really, uh, applicable in this day and age? Yeah. So it's, uh, a relatively popular verse. This is first Thessalonians four verse three for, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality. Uh, and so here, I mean, again, this, this is a letter written to a church and a culture and a context. And so this was a promiscuous culture. And so Paul's writing to them to say like, Hey, abstain from sexual morality. Don't look like them. Um, and yet for, for us, which was kind of a shocking thing it, in that absolutely. culture. To I, say, I mean, I think it's, we're going to have a strong sexual ethic. Yeah. Uh, of when, what the, the Aphrodite and, and just mm-hmm. an over sexualized culture. And mm-hmm. of course, I mean, today we, we have that as well, which is why praise God, the, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, Counterculture to every culture, but but this idea of this is the will of the Lord that you be sanctified, uh, and, and that's His will for us that that we be conformed to the image of His Son. That we don't to, to use Paul's language in, in Romans twelve, we don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed. This idea of uh, conforming is to like blend in to be apart, but transforming is to rise above, to be different, set apart by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul does a good job of of using scripture and saying, hey, here's our hope. Renew your mind with this hope that Jesus is coming. Therefore, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Live differently. Uh, and, and it's the Lord's will that we be sanctified. And, and, and I mean, this is a, as we talk about college students with light bearers, I mean, we, we get from a discipleship perspective, we get these questions all the time of, of hey, who should I marry? Uh, uh, who would the Lord will that I marry? Or what job should I take? I don't want to be outside of the Lord's will. And, and I mean, in a lot of ways, this, this speaks into that. What's the Lord's will? That we be sanctified. And so the decisions we make, if we have a decision at hand, let's put it through that filter of, so I, I have two job opportunities. Is one going to sanctify me more? Uh, if the answer is yes, then I'm going to say, do that one. Uh, that's the will of the, uh, of the Father. Which doesn't necessarily mean choose the harder one. Right, right. It, right, just, it right. just means you don't necessarily need to wait for a, magical sign. Absolutely. And, and if it's a, if, if it's, well, I feel like I can grow in both, whatever that looks like. And I'm, that's vague. Mm-hmm. I understand, but I can be sanctified in both. Then there's really a freedom of, then it's a left or right decision, not a right or wrong decision. And what do you want to do? And, and but, but looking through this, this lens of what's the will of the Lord for us and that we be sanctified. And so for us as believers, and of course, sanctification, this is a work of God and man. It's a progressive work. Uh, but but that we as believers make decisions uh, in form our life so that we can be sanctified, that the Lord is faithful, as, as Paul says in uh, Philippians 1.16, he's faithful to finish, that's what he started, praise God, that's, that's our hope. And yet there's all these commands we see in, in Thessalonians and in the epistles of, but you flee from sexual morality. Mm-hmm. And so there's this responsibility of us as, as believers who place faith in Jesus Christ to, to abstain from sexual morality. 
to uh, flee from sin and pursue righteousness. And so we need to make these decisions that this would be the will of the Lord, to make decisions that would align us in such a way uh, that we can look more and more like Jesus, that we can be more sanctified and, and bring glory to his name. Yeah, and in, in chapter 5, it's like Paul's getting towards the end and he's running out of space on his yellow legal pad and he just kind of starts jotting this stuff out. He's like, give thanks always, pray without mm-hmm. ceasing, you know, rejoice, you know, and it's kind of this same, hey, in light of the gospel, sometimes it's not that complicated, Yeah, you know, yeah, move forward and here's some ways to do that, so. All right. Well, Brett, thanks for thanks for shedding some light onto this. Let me. I'm gonna read that into chapter three that you said, and I'll close this out this way. This is a blessing that Paul gives to the people. Chapter three, verses twelve and thirteen. He says, "May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints." Uh, may that may that be true. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Lightbears Institute podcast, a production of Lightbears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com.